Macworld Podcast number 12, October 19th, 2005. Welcome to a special edition of the Macworld Podcast. Sarus Faravar is on vacation. I'm Jason Snell, the editorial director of Macworld. This morning, Apple made an announcement in New York City at the Photo Plus Expo. Actually, several announcements. And uh, simultaneously, they had a press briefing in Cupertino, which I was in attendance for, as well as Macworld senior editor Kelly Turner, who will be talking to you in a minute. Apple actually made several announcements today, all targeted at pro customers, um, which is fitting for an announcement made at a professional photography show. Uh, First up on the agenda were new Mac systems, pro systems this time, new Power Macs and new PowerBooks. So... Before we get to Kelly and a discussion of the new software announcement today, which is a program called Aperture that's targeted at professional photographers, let me talk to you a little bit about what we heard from Apple in terms of the hardware. First up, new PowerBooks today, new versions of the 15 and the 17-inch PowerBook models. Those of you who are faithful users of the 12-inch PowerBook, it will be no surprise that Apple didn't really do any major updates to the 12-inch PowerBook. As a 12-inch PowerBook user myself, I sort of have come accustomed to the fact that exciting new innovations in the PowerBook line tend not to happen in the 12-inch model, and I've come to accept it, if not like it. The 15-inch and 17-inch PowerBook, however, did get some major updates, not in terms of processor power, but in terms of display primarily, as well as some graphics support. So the new 15-inch PowerBook, in addition to having a lower price, starts at $19.99 instead of $22.99, now has a higher resolution screen. It's a 1440 by 960 pixel screen. So the screen is the same size, but there are more pixels on it, uh, which Apple says is important for professionals who want more room for work area. Um, But when you increase resolution on a screen, you also risk sacrificing some legibility because all your text becomes a little bit smaller. Uh, Apple says that they've struck a balance with these systems. Um, The the net result is for a 15-inch PowerBook user, you're getting about 26% more pixels than you got with the previous 15-inch model. Uh, The 15-inch also now has 128 megs of graphics memory, which means it can now drive the Apple 30-inch cinema display, which it previously couldn't. On the 17-inch, which already could drive the 30-inch display, there's still high resolution on its display. It's now got the same resolution as Apple's 20-inch desktop monitor, it's 1680 by 1050 pixels. That's about 36% more pixels. And Apple says that the screen's also about 46% brighter than the previous screen. Again, the way Apple is describing this, these are requests that professional users of PowerBooks made to Apple. Uh, We want more pixels. We want the screen to be brighter. And that's what Apple is doing. So an interesting kind of PowerBook update, not the the one you usually get. It's It's a display update and a little bit of a graphics update more than anything else. Also, a little bit longer battery life, Apple says, about an hour longer than their previous rated battery life, so about five and a half hours. What that translates for in the real world can really vary, but um, usually if Apple says that the battery life has improved, it has improved. It's just a matter of, you know, what you do with your PowerBook is going to determine what that real-life battery life is for you, but it it is uh, supposed to last longer than previous PowerBook models. More impressively in terms of updates, Apple updated today, the PowerMac line. 
And this is the first introduction we really had on the Mac side to dual-core technology. This is a chip that we heard about a few months ago from IBM, a G5 chip that is essentially a dual processor on a chip. Um, this new G5 has two processor units on a single piece of silicon. So it's like having two G5s sort of fused together, and that's how Phil Schiller of uh, Apple described it today. It's a little more complicated than that, but essentially one piece of silicon has two chips on it. In addition, there were a bunch of other changes in the guts of the PowerMax, um, all designed to improve performance even further. So the front-side bus speed is increased. The, the, the new PowerMax used DDR2 RAM, which is faster. And I think most interestingly, all the slots in the G5 are now PCI Express, PCI Express is a new slot technology. It's not really compatible with PCI and PCI-X, which were available in previous PowerMax. It's um, becoming common on the PC. There are a lot of cards out there already. There are more to come. One of the interesting things is that this eliminates the dichotomy that we used to have when we, when we had um, a video card and an AGP slot in a PowerMax, and then separately a bunch of PCI slots for expansion. Um, these... PCI Express slots on the G5 are not all the same. There's a 16X, an 8X, and two 4X slots. So some of them are not as fast as others. But what it does mean is that if you have a video card and you want to buy another video card, the video cards all live in the same slots. And a lower-end video card, you can put in a slower slot and you're not going to notice the difference. The very highest high-end video card the Quadro FX 4500, which NVIDIA makes and is now available for these systems. It's a super high-end video card. That one you're going to want to put in the fastest PCI Express slot, but it's all the same technology. In previous models, if you wanted to upgrade your video card, you had to throw your old AGP card away because there were no other AGP slots in your system. And with this new PCI Express architecture, you can actually you know, bump the old card down a slot, put your new card in the fastest of the PCI Express slots, and you'll have two cards in there, which you couldn't have done previously with only one AGP slot for your video card. You would have had to choose one AGP card and move the other one out. So some other new stuff that's in these new PowerMacs, I mean, they've all got a 16X SuperDrive with dual-layer burning. There are two gigabit Ethernet ports on the back, which is pretty interesting. No modem, if you want to use a modem, you're going to have to buy the $49 USB modem that Apple introduced last week. With the exception of the Mac Mini, it clears away the entire product line of desktops uh, from having modems. The modems are gone. Like a floppy drive, Apple said nobody needs a modem, and if you do need a modem, you can buy an external modem. The good news is Apple is making its own external modem now, so um, it should be pretty integrated uh, if you do need a modem. So the addition to graphics in the PowerBooks is mirrored here in the PowerMax, there are new, uh, there's new support for 30-inch displays across the line. Every PowerMac out of the box now will drive Apple's gigantic 30-inch display. The Quadro card I mentioned earlier actually supports two 30-inch displays, which is pretty wacky. But um, what Apple says is a lot of their professional customers, especially video and, and photography pros, really want those giant displays, and they're willing to pay for them. So it's um, that, that support for dual displays is pretty impressive. And because all those PCI Express slots are compatible, you could theoretically keep on adding cards and keep on adding 30-inch displays if you really wanted to, to go nuts. But let's get to the heart of these updates. The heart of these updates are the dual-core chip. The new dual-core G5 gives you a, a dual processor on a chip, 
and that leads to these new systems, the two low-end systems being called the PowerMac G5 Dual, to differentiate them from the G5 Quad, which is the new high-end system, which has two dual-core G5 chips in it. So it's the equivalent of a four G5 system. So it's pretty impressive. The uh, configurations for these models, there's a dual 2 gigahertz, a dual 2.3 gigahertz, and the quad 2.5 gigahertz. So it's actually a little bit slower in terms of clock from the previous high-end system, which was a 2.7 dual, but the quad 2.5 will no doubt be the fastest Mac Apple has ever made because it's going to have four processing cores running at 2.5 gigahertz. The prices for these systems starts at $12.99. The Quad 2.5 is a $32.99 price. You know, throw in a fast video card and a couple of 30-inch displays, and uh, you could ring up a nice $20,000 bill if you really wanted to, and you'd have a heck of a system to, to run some of Apple's Pro software on, including Aperture, which we'll talk about in a second. So... As I mentioned, Kelly Turner, our senior how-to editor and our digital photography expert, came with me down to Cupertino this morning to see what Apple had uh, in store for its photography customers. And the end result was Aperture, which is a really interesting product. So I'm going to bring Kelly Turner in, and we'll talk a little bit with her about Aperture. So, Kelly, we saw Aperture this morning. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what Aperture is and what it does? So Aperture um, is first and foremost aimed at pro photographers. They made that very clear from the start. And they're really billing it as your photographic workflow from import to print. What's interesting about it is that it offers native support for raw files throughout the workflow, which is uh, fairly new. Currently, if you want to work with raw files, which the advantage of a raw file is that it captures the settings from the camera without actually applying any image manipulation to it. So you can set the ISO later, you can set the white balance later, and a lot of pro photographers have really picked this up as a way to work with images and to give them more flexibility, and they have just more image data to work with. But there isn't currently a program that lets you keep something in raw format the entire time that you're working. Photoshop has a raw plugin that you bring it in, you edit, and then you convert it to something else before you take it into the main section of Photoshop. So if you want to work with layers and stuff like that, you actually have to convert that raw file to something else, like a Photoshop file or a JPEG or a TIFF. So there's an, this wonderful file format that gives you direct access to all this stuff, but in order to work with it up to now, you've really needed an intermediate format. So you have to take it out of RAW. It's been more which complicated. Is, which is the whole benefit of RAW. Right. And so Aperture is nice uh, because it lets you keep it in RAW the whole time. And you can so not only sort your images, but you can apply image correction to them. You can take away image correction. You never lose the full benefit of your main file. You can do whatever you want to it. One of the things that I thought was interesting about Aperture was that it's not just an image editing program. It's not right. in many ways an image editing program. And it really is a full focused. workflow. It seems to be focused on the workflow of photographers dealing with hundreds or thousands of images and finding the right ones. Right. So the first part of the program is really tools for organizing, rating, sorting, comparing, and analyzing shots. So say you go out, you take, you know, several hundred or sometimes several thousand photos 
on a trip or a photo shoot or whatever, you come back and you need a way to kind of sort through those quickly. And they offer a whole interface for finding photos that were taken together based on the time in between the shots, if you took them in burst mode, and for grouping those photos together, quickly seeing them all together. There's a loop tool so you can quickly zoom in and see which ones are in focus. And you can quickly sort of sort out the photos that you really want to work with in this interface and then take those into your editing tools. It's all, it's not really three different programs. It's all one program, but you can work back and forth between them pretty easily, it looks like. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting is that there have been rumors about Apple doing a, a new photo app that was higher end than, than iPhoto, and all the thought has been, is this going to kill Photoshop elements? Is this going to compete with Photoshop? And what I find interesting is this this is not only not a, not a consumer tool, definitely not a consumer tool, but it's a pretty high-end pro tool. I mean, in some ways, it's it's more high-end than Photoshop, would you right. say? Right, yeah. It, um, it's definitely a different angle of the high-end focus. Um, For example, Photoshop still has, over this tool, it has layers and masks and a lot of the stuff you would do to a photo when you're really taking it beyond kind of basic image correction. But they've built Aperture to really be kind of everything you would do to an image beyond that stuff, white balance and curves and color and sharpening and all of that, but in a workflow that you couldn't use Photoshop for. So in that sense, it is kind of a bit higher end than Photoshop is right now. And it raises the question of where Adobe takes Photoshop. (laughs) Right. Now, it it is fair to say, though, and Apple actually, I think, kind of impressively went out of their way to say that that Aperture is built to work with Photoshop because they know that everybody who's a digital photographer has Photoshop. So it does work with Photoshop. It does. They have an output that goes to Photoshop so you can edit in Photoshop and then bring it back in. The benefit of Aperture is that none of your effects permanently affect the picture. You can click effects on and off. It's non-destructive. So at the end of the process, you know, you can finish your image go back to it months later, and still undo everything that you've done. There's nothing permanent. However, if you leave Aperture and go to Photoshop, make changes there, and bring it back in, you've essentially set it at that point in stone. So you're then working from the encoded file that you brought back from Photoshop. So you do lose something, it sounds like, in going from Photoshop and back. Right. Once, you, once you've gone from Photoshop and back, if you want to make an edit to something you did before you went to Photoshop, you've you kind of got to go throw to the file away. before Photoshop. Yeah, you've got to throw away what you did in Photoshop. I think that'll be a challenge for people who are used to working in Photoshop and want to incorporate these two together. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a challenge from a workflow standpoint of, okay, when do I use Aperture? Right. When do I use Photoshop? At what when point do I go to, to Photoshop? Stone. And, and we should say, I mean, it's a beautiful interface. It's got these sort of dock-like pop-ups of a film strip and totally floating Apple. images. It's, it's so Apple. But at the same time, they demoed it for us on presumably the new quad G5 system, and it was fantastic. But then I saw it at the demo, I saw it on a, on a PowerBook, and it definitely, you know, kind of churned every time you wanted <laughs> to look at a picture. So so the CPU requirements for this thing to really fly, I mean, people are basically going to want to buy a, a, a new G5 or use a recent G5 for this, because it's pretty hefty. And if I'm remembering correctly, the minimum system requirement was a uh, 1.25 gigahertz 
system, which, right. you know. It's not, it's not lightweight. And I think they even have a recommended requirement line, which is more around the two gigahertz right. range. So, yeah. I mean, definitely photo pros are going to have fast systems and, and it will be something that works on the, on a power book for a pro in the field. But mm-hmm. definitely, you know, Apple did not skimp in terms of taking advantage of, of fast processors because it, it looks like it's right. going to, you know, you wouldn't want to use it on a lightweight system. And they've also, I just want to throw in here, they've tied in the end of the process as well, um, kind of like iPhoto on steroids. You can also create books from Aperture as well as go to web galleries and to the printer. However, they've kind of taken all of that to a new level by giving you more customization. Uh, the photo books are higher resolution, and you can customize the books that you create. You can do the layout entirely how you want to do it if you don't want to use their templates. Yeah, I admit as an iPhoto user, I actually was a little bit jealous of those features. Yeah. And I think, I think if there are any features in Aperture that are going to appeal to consumers and might even come down at some point to the consumer product line, maybe with an mm-hmm. iLife 06 kind of, right. kind of scenario... It's the the more um, control over web output and 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 book output that iPhoto just doesn't yeah, it did give look you. Really and, and it, yeah, that looked really impressive. And another way in which it's a bit like iPhoto is that it manages your files for you, which you know you may love or you may hate depending on how you use your files. But essentially, when you load files and projects into it. It keeps an original of your image. It's your digital negative, and it never touches it. And all of the effects you apply to it essentially get layered on top. As a result of that, though, you can't just store your files anywhere in the system that you want. Aperture takes them. Aperture keeps track of them. Aperture knows where they are. And it helps it because it can do versions and track all of that. But it also, you know, if you've ever worked with iPhoto's cataloging system, it can raise other problems of just figuring out where your files are. If you want something that's been edited with Aperture in another app, you've got to basically go through Aperture and say, save out a final version of this in some form Mm -hmm. for me to take to that app, whether it's Photoshop or something else, because that version doesn't really exist. What exists is your raw file and a list of what's been done to it. And that's cool because you can turn things on and off and it doesn't even need to be a sequence of undos. You can do an effect and do 10 more and then turn off the first effect. Right. But the end result is that you can't, until you really sort of render that file into a real file on the disk somewhere, you know, you can't touch it. Yeah. Another interesting note on that is that there's no save command, which will probably send photographers into, <laughs> into a fit. Um, instead, it keeps everything that you do in a SQL database. So it is recording what you do constantly. Um, but it's a new concept yeah, for image editors that there's no save. I was thinking it's, that they ought to put a command S command that just sort of just re- makes you feel better. Makes you feel better, <laughs> even though it doesn't actually do anything. As somebody who uses FileMaker and finds it insane that you can't save anything, yes. um, at least with this, you have a very clear series of undos, so you can get out of anything you do. It's not as if right. the save is committing every, anything to uh, eternity. But it, it is a little weird that there's no. It's just a modeless kind of editing process that you go through. Yep. It just tracks everything you do. So um, we touched on this briefly, but some people thought that this kind of announcement from Apple would be a Photoshop killer, but it really doesn't seem like like um, Adobe in the short term has much to worry about, that this is a very complimentary tool. Although I wonder... Right. I don't think term. any photographers will be giving up Photoshop anytime soon. Um, first of all, I mean, we're comfortable with it. And it also it has a lot of power that Apple is not going for here. At least not yet. Not 
in this I mean, version. I could, I could see, I, I think it's interesting to look down the line to the next versions of Aperture and Photoshop and say, are there things that Adobe's going to look at what Apple's doing and say, we ought to provide that in Photoshop? Are there things that Apple is going to continue to look mm-hmm. at in Adobe's product and say, maybe we can get more of that in our own product? Mm-hmm. And at what point do they, do they clash or do they kind of run along parallel tracks? In I mean, the more than a Photoshop competitor, this is really a competitor to Camera Raw and the bridge built into CS2. I mean, it is a direct competitor to those. And if you work with a lot of images, I mean, it looks very cool. I think it will definitely raise some eyebrows. Some of the photographers I've just talked to quickly since coming back have said that they definitely plan on checking it out as soon as they can get their hands on it. Now, speaking of getting our hands on it, it's four ninety nine, and it's available In next November. month. Okay, so so hopefully so we'll, we'll see. hopefully we'll get our hands on a beta, and we can tell everybody out there more about it when uh, when we do. But um, in the meantime, we are waiting patiently to see right. what what else is in Aperture and how how it really works. Kelly Turner, thank you so much for thank being you. on the podcast. And that'll do it for this special edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'd like to thank Sarus Farivar for letting me steal his podcast for a week. And thanks for listening. If you've got any feedback, please feel free to send it to us at Macworld. And you can always find show notes and other information about Macworld's podcast at macworld.com slash podcast. Thanks a lot. This is Jason Snell signing off. Thanks for listening.